Well, hey there, Water Coolians. Welcome back to the last new episode of 2021 before the best of episode that will be released on December 28th. Make sure to email us at watercoolertalkpod at gmail.com or connect with us on Instagram at watercoolertalkpod to share your favorite story of the year. As always, the five most popular stories of the year, unfortunately excluding this episode, but our guest today, Professor Beth Fawson, gets the privilege of being the last guest episode of 2021, so that is an honor in itself, we'll get to share the limelight as being the best water cooler talk conversations of the year we called 2021. So, send in your suggestions. But for today's episode, we are joined by the wonderful Professor Beth Fawson to talk about the world of advertising, marketing, and companies using our dreams to sell us beer. One of the larger pieces of conversation from today's episode focuses on the idea of how companies are injecting themselves into our social circles and the massive influence that our peers have over ourselves when it comes to, you know, what we buy, what we watch, what we may support politically, you know, this list goes on and on. But it makes you realize how important it is to be aware of the individuals you surround yourself with and what impact their choices may have on the everyday decisions you're making. Also be aware of the world, the thoughts, and the products outside of that circle. Especially when it comes to something like content creation, there's a ton upon a ton of content being made. Every literal second. As Beth mentions in this episode, advertising and marketing are vitally important to helping level the playing field between the people on top and the people on the bottom. Even for myself, having a chance to compete with the big names of news conversation podcast, whether it be through your ears, which by the way, 17 of you are mega fans and listen to the show more than any other podcast out there. So thank you. Or even through podcast award shows is amazingly awesome. Regardless of how we view marketing and advertising, it has its pros and cons, but as you'll come to hear more throughout this episode, as long as we have good-hearted people like Professor Fawson teaching the next generation and individuals like yourself wanting to be better, I I think we'll be okay. <laughs> a, a, a little positivity to end the year. I think it's needed. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is Water Cooler Talk episode 74 titled Word of Mouth with Beth Fawson. Enjoy. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. All right, well, Beth, are you ready to jump into our first news story of the episode? Yeah, I'm ready. Let's do it. All right. This is from Latest Page News Technology, written by Zunsi T, October 28th, 2021. Facebook, quote, has a negative impact on society, says the Snapchat founder. In an interview with the Economic Times, Snapchat founder and CEO Evan Spiegel denied the claim that the problems plaguing Facebook are inherent in all major tech companies. Facebook recently was the subject of numerous scandals released by whistleblower Francis Hogan in regards to moderation of politics on their platform and went on to state about Facebook, I think the challenges we see today aren't necessarily problems that all of big tech is facing. It's Facebook, a big platform in particular that has found time and time again that the well-intentioned people in their business try to make a difference, negatively impacting society. That is the problem that we are really dealing with today. The business is really huge and has several very large platforms that reach billions of people. In the UK, the government is developing an online safety law that would force social media companies to regulate legal but harmful content. Although companies have succeeded in forcing companies to implement policies in other areas, such as child protection, 
experts have said that the government's vague language can lead to draconian or unenforceable policies. Snapchat CEO Evan Spiegel continues, The hardest and most frustrating part is that in the tech industry, things move so fast and have such an impact that regulation is usually way too late if you don't take moral responsibility from the start when you develop it. So I'm not sure what that means for the future, but I think what will be crucial going forward is that all technology companies, everyone working on a new technology product, think about the impact on society from the start and make sure they are doing the right thing, not just to serve the community of people, people who use their products, but the wide world. So first off, Beth, do you believe that Snapchat CEO is being hypocritical here with his statements or can big tech companies be trusted enough to be responsible with how they handle their massive influence? It's a really good question. And I really enjoyed this article. And I think you highlighted a point that's very important for readers to cue in on is who they interviewed for the source of this article. So it's the Snapchat CEO kind of talking very critically about Facebook and so and, and, and what they're doing. So you could see it from one lens as a competitor trying to kick down another competitor. So like mm-hmm. we and have Facebook to, was a company that tried to buy out Snapchat. Exactly. So we have to like acknowledge that that is like some animal in the room, not necessarily an elephant, but some <laughs> animal that we need to be sort of cognizant of as we sort of go into it. I mean, I'm an optimist. So everything that sort of goes through that lens, I, I guess I do agree with the sentiment that just because your company is very big, doesn't mean they're inherently have to have immoral practices. Like I I think there are companies as they get larger that do certainly face decisions that are difficult that could have like potentially negative societal impacts. Like you think maybe environmental as your, you know, warehouses have to get bigger and bigger, bigger, you're obviously going to have a larger carbon footprint. But I think there are things you can do to offset those sort of things. So you're still at a net positive. So I, I think I do agree with the sentiment that just because you're big doesn't necessarily mean that you're moral or you're bound to have this sort of negative impact on society. And I would imagine, and maybe I'm being too, you know, accepting of goodness in the world, but I'd imagine as we continue on this process of creating new apps and new technologies that we're not always going to have this one singular voice that is running this company, like you see in Facebook, where, you know, Mark Zuckerberg obviously started Facebook from a very negative space on being rejected and wanting to create this platform where he could kind of get back at the people who rejected him. I think just in general, when we speak about Facebook, and I kind of want to talk to you about how big the actual influence of Facebook is, but Facebook started at a very, in a very negative place. So to see it continue on that process and rightfully so, Facebook has a lot of good positives. Like, you know, I'm someone who has traveled a lot in my life, especially internationally. And to be able to connect to those individuals, even through Instagram, that's now owned by Facebook or Meta, it does have positives, but a company starting from a negative, it's a lot harder to overcome that negative to become a positive company. But that doesn't mean other companies that start from a good place and want to add something to the world uh, that they truly believe can make the world a better place is going to be negative in the same sense that Facebook, with their large influence, has become, in the zeitgeist, a negative platform. It is sort of interesting. In the last couple months, we've seen some glimpses and windows into Facebook or Meta Meta, and what their sort of guiding goal is when they make business decisions. And I think that can play a huge role when we sort of think about this sort of overall societal impact or even individual well-being impact. And it's unclear what Facebook's are. As you mentioned, it 
they had sort of negative beginnings. And it, it does seem that they're trying to prioritize the things that the advertisers want, getting people on the platform, getting people aroused, like, and like getting people, um, you know, angry, like, th- these are not necessarily things that people are good for sort of individuals, but might be good for advertiser dollars. So mm-hmm. it's not clear, at least in my view, as someone that, you know, doesn't work for Facebook or have inside knowledge of Facebook, what they're guiding stakeholder goals are it seems clear with other companies but with facebook yeah it doesn't seem obvious yeah we kind of got a peek into what their goals are with you know the recent whistleblowers and you know that kind of sense and i mean that's one of the tough things now when you're trying to create into this you know app world you know do you charge for the app or do you allow it to be a free platform and then if you're a free platform at what essence do you say we're using your data to give to advertisers because could Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat really be as big as they were if they cost, say, you know, four ninety nine for that initial payment? And you know, working within advertising and understanding advertising, how does that play into the factor of what the future of apps can be? Having to decide between being this app that we're charging you to use this app or it's just another free app. I think consumers are smarter than they used to be because we have more information available. And we also have more choice than we've ever had before. And so if we feel like we don't want to use Facebook, we don't have to use Facebook. There are other platforms online these days that can allow us to connect with one another. And in some of the research that I've read in sort of the marketing domain, there is an increasing demand for consumers to be in control. So When it comes to what kind of the example you just gave of like apps starting up, one of the things is just give consumers control, have them consent to certain things. A lot of consumers are willing to give up some data in exchange for a service they feel gives ads value to their life. You just have to be very transparent about that sort of interaction. And so there are even these apps and companies nowadays that are just like, yep, your data this month is worth, you know, however many dollars. And you're getting these free services and we're selling your data in this way. Like, do you agree to keep doing this next month? And a lot of consumers, if you presented them with that information in a very concise way, I think would feel a little bit better about sort of the privacy argument. At least that's my under, that's my sort of take. <laughs> no, I, I definitely agree. You know, if these companies, and we talked about this when we talked about like Spotify using inferior your emotions to kind of create playlists. This conversation could be heard in episode 65, Privacy Paradox with our good friend Jake Teeny. But if you are transparent with what you're using my data for, I'm a lot willing or a lot more willing to trust you in what you're doing because I understand as a user of your platform, if giving some of my data away can make that platform more integrated to me, I mean, that's worth it to me, but it's worth it up to a point. And it might not be worth it for everyone. But that's the other thing. But that's the nice thing about being transparent is people can kind of decide what they're willing to give and what they're not willing to give. Mm -hmm. And kind of to your point about like having outside options besides Facebook, like I really want to not grill you on it, but like, is there actually options outside of Facebook? Because we're seeing this with uh, right-leaning individuals trying to create their own platforms um, and this whole concept of free speech and what we can say and what we can't with regards to Twitter. I mean, has Facebook become, has Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, you know, Instagram being owned by Facebook, have they become so big that finding another platform isn't really going to happen unless there's this huge cultural shift? Because something like, you know, I think for myself, I only use Instagram and to 
try to think of another photo sharing app that has enough user base that can create another culture. I mean, is it really possible? For some people, probably no. Um, And that's probably what you know, Meta loves to leverage. I think there's a big generational gap here too. Like, as you mentioned there, it is very costly to build up networks. So like some of us who have been on Facebook or Instagram for more than a decade, right? Like that, that takes a lot of time to sort of cultivate like a group of people that you, that you want to be involved with and get interactions with. And that is costly to transfer over from platform to platform. Now, younger generations, Gen Z, you know, those have only been exposed to social media for less than five years, their adoption of new platforms is is exponentially greater than older generations, because they don't have this costly network moving thing, right? Like if you've only been on Facebook for a year, and then TikTok comes out, like it's easy to sort of adjust and be like, bah, well, that I'm never going to log on to Facebook, I get nothing out of it. None of my friends are there. Like all my friends are on these other platforms. But I do think there are substitutes. I think, you know, the brilliant you know, benefit of being in sort of this internet technology age is that if we truly wanted to get off Facebook and create platforms with other people in other online spaces, the tech is there to do that. Now it is costly to do it. It takes time to sort of coordinate with your friends to sort of create different groups. And you don't want to do it on WhatsApp because Facebook owns that too. <laughs> so our meta owns that too. So I think there are substitutes. It is costly to access them. And so some people are like, you know, forget it. Like, I'm not going to regroup my 500 friends to this other setting. But I, I do think technology does enable substitutes for those of people who are on the fence that are like, I have seriously been considering getting off Facebook. You know, how would you go about doing it? There are so many sort of messaging apps to create smaller, more intimate groups. And there's other social media platforms that, you know, like Snapchat or, or TikTok or Twitter that aren't part of the metaverse that you can sort of assess if they sort of meet your standards for what a company should be doing. Yeah, kind of, if I'm hearing you correctly, kind of if there is room to have innovation, like say taking something like Vine and people are like, oh, I really like Vine and then Vine goes under and then saying, well, I want something like that. And then TikTok comes to the the platform and says, all right, we're doing this. And now we're seeing Instagram with Instagram Reels. And I think there's a few other trying to copy the success of TikTok. But as long as there's that technological room for innovation, like I want something from a platform and it doesn't exist, there's an opportunity for that platform to exist. I agree. Yep. I I think technology has enabled more choice in this domain than we had even like five years ago, to be honest. And then kind of to that Facebook influence question I posed earlier, you know, to a reasonable extent through your research and understanding advertising, online consumer behavior, political marketing, How big do you believe Facebook's influence has become? Substantial. It reaches a number of eyeballs. Um, You sort of think about how many users are across the metaverse. It's a lot. So anytime you have the potential to generate impressions to millions of people, that has the potential to impact people. Their research on this topic in terms of like the impact of like Facebook ads on consumer decisions it's quite mixed, but there's a lot of research that does show that it, it does impact decisions. So, you know, there's been research in political science that have shown that political ads can influence our voting behavior. And we're also super influenced by our peers, like even more than ads. So like if I see, you know, you and more friends on Facebook and you're like, hey, I just went and saw Dune. It was amazing. I might be more likely to go see that movie. So we are definitely influenced by one another. And Facebook has played sort of a role in, in broadcasting that influence mm-hmm. more readily. So I, I do think it has a has had 
huge impacts on consumer behavior, on political outcomes and fundraising, all that. I I think there's a lot of evidence to support that. Um, yeah, doing fantastic movie, yes. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I definitely agree with what you're saying there in and we'll can talk more about this when it comes to advertising, but I'd rather buy something from, say, a friend that's saying Dune is a really good movie, go see it, rather than Dune trying to advertise to me through TV or radio or podcast because I'm willing to or I'm more willing to trust a friend's some of my friends, not all the friends, uh, but I'm willing to trust their recommendations over the recommendations of a complete stranger. And Facebook has created this platform and put themselves squarely in the zeitgeist of humanity to be able to influence people on a grand scale. And and I think there's um, something along the lines with anti-vaxxers, like it all comes from like nine groups or nine people. It's actually 12 people called the Disinformation Dozen that produce 65% of the shares of anti-vaccine misinformation on social media platforms like Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And it just spreads to everyone who believes in that cause. But really, it's just coming from the small set of people that have gamed the system. And I we're seeing a lot of that when it comes to what these whistleblowers at Facebook are talking about, how easy it is to kind of game the system once you understand what Facebook wants to do with their platform. Yeah, there, there are two. I love that. And there are two points I, I just want to take and run from that that I think are really interesting. The first is there's so much scientific evidence to back up your claim that we're more influenced by peers than ads, like so much. And it's one of the reasons I have been fascinated by studying something called word of mouth, which is essentially these sort of conversations that people have amongst themselves are so much more influential on uh, impacting our like purchasing behavior than ads are. And you nail, you hit the nail on the head is the reason why we just trust our peers more than we trust companies. Like we're just more likely to take the opinions of others and use that to update our beliefs and our attitudes towards products and services in the marketplace. And so because of that, there's been the last, it sort of exploded in the online world, but the last sort of 10 to 15 years, huge number of marketing research studying what's called word of mouth. So these sort of like interactions that people have have, either on social media platforms or, you know, in person to see how they influence us and the effect size is astronomically greater than the effect size of like traditional ads. So that's sort of like one nugget that I there's so much scientific evidence to support your belief. Another point that sort of popped in my head as you were talking is the rise of influencer marketing to sort of get at this idea that when there are these huge ideas that go viral, a lot of times there's only a few individuals that are sort of behind spreading that information, which in the marketing world, sort of in the last five years or so, that has just created this like astronomical rise in something called influencer marketing, where companies are paying normal people mm -hmm. to talk about products in a way that seems organic and services that seems organic. So we they can get that sort of word of mouth, peer to peer influence effect, but it's actually advertising. It's sort of kind of a deceptive way to advertise. And I think a lot of people, when they think of the origins of influencer marketing, think of mommy bloggers. It's like these women that like companies gave them free products or like free stuff. And they went on and talked to blogs. And uh, as someone who's been through new parenthood in, in the beginning of parenthood, you have no idea what you need. And like, I just remember like not having any, like so much stuff I had to buy in the first couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. So it's so easy to be influenced by that. That's sort of the classic sort of influencer marketing example of these companies went to these mommy bloggers, paid them or gave them free products. They talk about it online. 
I'm like, oh, hey, this woman's just on her, you know, blog talking about this thing and mentions, you know, a boppy. I should probably try one out. They're not that expensive. And so it's deceptive. It sort of blurred the lines between like traditional peer to peer influence because you just like Dune. That's why you brought it up versus, hey, did someone, you know, give you a free movie ticket for you to talk about how much you love that movie? So it is sort of an interesting, um, unfortunate, I guess, in some realms, deceptive marketing uh, activity that's really exploded recently. Well, and I do kind of want to continue this conversation. I want to introduce you first. But it, as you were saying that, and as we were talking about the influence of Facebook, I was just thinking about the show Secession. And I was like, oh, I could bring up Secession, but now am I advertising for Secession? But anyways, <laughs> I would like to welcome to the show Professor Beth Fossen from the Kelly School of Business at Indiana University. Her current research interests lie in investigating advertising, political marketing, and online consumer behavior. Beth, welcome to Water Cooler Talk. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. So I kind of want to get back to what I was just saying, you know, a question I tend to think about probably more than I should. And it came up when, you know, reading our next article that we'll discuss is this idea that I'm always being marketed to, you know, companies are trying to monetize every decision I make, whether it be a company like Target, who monitored trends and was able to tell if the people were uh, pregnant before they even knew themselves, or, you know, a specific piece of music being played in a liquor store to influence me to buy a specific brand of beer. How do we disassociate those fears of always being a product? Or is it something that will forever be intertwined? And we've basically already gone off the edge? That's a good question. Um, And I think you could answer it either way, um, depending on the type (laughs) of uh, mindset you have on this. I, I, again, I mentioned I'm kind of an optimist. So Mm -hmm. I, I think my philosophy is always that there are things to be done if you don't like to be sold to this way as a consumer. So I do agree with the sentiment that it does sort of always feel like we're being advertised to. And in some realms, It's right. Like every time you log online, almost every platform you have is going to have ads, even platforms you pay for, like subscription platforms like Netflix have things called product placements, which are ads that are embedded into the content that we're watching. And a lot of times those are paid relationships. So a firm has like paid, you know, the creators to have their product featured in that show. You know, because of that, we can't even get away from ads when we pay to not view them kind of mentality. So we're constantly being exposed to ads. If that's something that is super upsetting to you as a consumer, you know, one of the things I would sort of encourage is just to become more and more informed. So like, figure out what type of product placements companies are, how they do that, how they sell those types of ad space so that you're not influenced by them. You know, there is sort of a growing backlash to advertising, like you'll see a ton of comments on like Reddit threads, where people are like, if I see an ad, it makes me more likely to hate the product or I would never buy that product because they have a forced pre-roll ad. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely a growing consumer base that as soon as they can recognize that an ad is being shown to them, they're going to, the effects will be negative. Like that persuasion knowledge kind of idea. Exactly. Yeah. So if for those of you who don't know, persuasion knowledge is this idea that as soon as I get the sense that you're trying to persuade me of something, I set up like this wall of like, counter arguing where it's like, no, I don't want to be persuaded. Like I don't want to be sold to and persuasion knowledge often is triggered in advertising. It's like, oh, I see an ad. I know they're trying to persuade me of something and I'm not going to let them influence me. So no way, no how is this ad going to influence my decisions when I go shopping? Because of that, advertisers try to get around persuasion knowledge all the time. Like they're like, we want you 
to know that you saw us, but not so prominently that you decide to, you know, trigger persuasion knowledge. So it's sort of this like dance that advertisers consistently do uh, to get around that. Well, yeah. And I know you've talked about previously, you know, how for advertising, it's better to feature it early in a, say, TV show rather than in the climax where it's a lot more prominent. Yeah. So that article you mentioned, you're right, is on some research I've done on product placements specifically, which we did find in that case that product placements that were shown earlier, and this was in the context of TV shows, so like earlier in TV shows, tended to be more effective than those that did show towards the end. As you mentioned, towards the end of a show, I might be more annoyed Mm -hmm. if you're trying to sell me something because I'm so engrossed in the narrative, like I want to figure out what's going to happen. Also, I might just be less likely to notice it. You know, I'm watching a great episode and, you know, the commercial break starts or whatever. I'm just going to go mad text my friends. I'm not even going to like pay attention because I'm so engrossed Mm -hmm. into what the TV show is going on in the TV show. So yeah, I, I do think there we found some evidence of that for product placements, um, that they're more effective earlier in TV shows. When I almost think it's more important for brands to invest into being a part of the zeitgeist rather than just directly advertising to me. Because I think even about like, when you go down south here in the US and you ask for something to drink, they'll be like, do you want a Coke? For most people, they might think, oh, a Coke is a specific brand. But in the south, a Coke is just what they say pop is, but Coke has done such a good job inundating themselves in our society that when you go down south, it's Coke. It's Coke. That's what pop is. It's not Coke or Pepsi. It's Coke. Yeah, there are. There's actually several brand names that do that. So like most of us, you learn the word Band-Aid. That's a brand name. Most of us learn the word Kleenex. Um, It is sort of funny because I have kids that are at that stage where they're just now learning language. And it is like I'm very cognizant of how many branded words they knew. No, like they learned the word Cheerios before they learned what cereal was. Like mm-hmm. there are certain like brand names that have that impact. They're just so associated with the category or the product itself that they have become the product themselves. And that is in some ways clever marketing, or it could be a first mover advantage um, in some ways, or I guess the first big mover advantage. Yeah, that's true. It's like, you know, if I can get to the space first, you know, that's why places like Twitter, Twitter doesn't really make much of a profit. Twitter has only made a profit in two of the 15 years it has been around, but they're in that space first and they're controlling that space to be just in that space rather than make a profit. And now Twitter is making money off of just being Twitter and not actually creating a product that is profitable. Yeah, I I, I think Twitter is a fascinating product. I, I'm an avid Twitter user myself, so I'm totally biased. <laughs> um, but I do think it's an interesting social media platform. And uh, yeah, from a research perspective, Twitter has been far more transparent with their data and their information than Facebook has. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of academics, I guess, are are more warm, at least towards Twitter for that reason. They are more transparent. They're more, um, they provide more data, just sort of have consumers or researchers assess, you know, problems, whereas Facebook is so closed door. So it's it's harder for us to see what's going on behind the curtain. Yeah. And and I mean, as far as for yourself, Beth, you know, how do you how do you how did you find yourself kind of in this field and wanting to study more about the effects of what advertising can do to the world? My background is actually in political marketing. So my like first job out of undergrad, I was like running political marketing campaigns. And that's a really high stakes advertising context. So like at the end of the day, and I'm biased because my background is marketing, but at the end of the day, my belief is that political campaigns are really just marketing campaigns. Whoever markets better 
at the end of the day, has a better advertising strategy, a better product and how they feature that product in their ads is going to win. Mm-hmm. And so it, it is sort of a really fascinating marketing question that has incredibly high stakes. It's also an incredibly hard industry to be in. So kudos to all of you listeners who are in the political marketing space, because I was in it and I know how emotionally draining it can be. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like working for your favorite sports team and working for multiple of them at the same time and then having to deal with losses and victories as it goes and it, it's it, it can be really challenging but being sort of in the political marketing space really did sort of invigorate my interest in how advertising and marketing messages influence us because in the political realm we can see evidence that it's it has huge societal impacts if it can impact who gets elected and, and the sort of decisions that stem from election, you know, it it certainly can influence other decisions in our lives. And so, you know, I guess I'm curious about how companies think they're influencing me and trying to break down how that works and, and, you know, just to be more informed. And I I try to do that with my research. I take on the lens of multiple stakeholders, like, you know, what advertisers need to know in terms of what works and what doesn't work, but also what do consumers need to know in that same realm of like, what what is working to influence you? and what is not. Because if you have that information and you have those tools, you can then decide if you want to be more or less susceptible to it, I think. Yeah, no, as I was talking earlier, kind of how interesting it is, like the subconscious idea of marketing, you know, we're inundated with like billions of points of data every second. And, you know, our brain just kind of puts most of that to the back end. We really make these decisions based off of just behaviors. You know, I like to think a lot about, um, clothes washing pods like when they're advertising on tv they're not necessarily saying hey buy our stuff they're creating this lifestyle brand that includes their product and as you're talking about earlier with like mommy vloggers and mommy you know bloggers as well you know they're not just advertising the product but they're trying to create a lifestyle around that product and so it's so interesting to see the influence of what words can do yeah totally agree i think a lot of the more recent sort of online advertising has done just that. It's less about selling a product or a brand. It's more about selling an idea. And there have been a lot of products that have kind of come out with that advertising message from the get-go, like a lot of social media sites, to be honest. It's less about the actual service and more about the ideas that it's selling you Mm -hmm. uh, to sort of attract people on. So that's not like, I guess, a a new uh, advertising technique. I mean, I think advertising has been privy to that for a while. It paints a picture in our head. It sort of has a narrative feel and a lot of people are more more um, responsive to narrative types of advertising. And so I agree. Yeah, like they can see themselves using this product, like, you know, thinking about like cigarettes back in the day, like how cool it was to smoke a cigarette. And you had James Dean smoking a cigarette with a leather jacket and a motorcycle. And it's like, oh, I want to be that. So I have to use these products to be that person. Yeah. And social media has exploded that, right? Whereas not only do I have companies doing that to me, but I also my friends doing that to me Mm -hmm. where it's like, oh, there's this person I really admire. And, you know, they, you know, just bought this new top. It's awesome. It's from this company. I might be more likely to also buy it. Right. So we're getting that influence from not only companies, but also peers. Yeah. And that's why I'm like very interested in the future of this, as you, you know, talked about earlier, word of mouth and what part that will play, especially with advertising to children. I know YouTube has really been trying to crack that down over the years, but it's still, you can have these product placements that aren't directly advertising, but they're still there. They're still creating a space in 
the reality of, you know, maybe a YouTube video or a podcast. That's a really important issue. And I I think at least regulators in the U.S. have been more responsive to the idea of trying to protect children from advertising messages, mm-hmm. less so than the general consumer or like, I guess the consumer. <laughs> well, that's the thing I was thinking about earlier. It's like, you have no idea if I'm sponsored by Dune. Yeah. Like, obviously, I think it's, you know, transparent to be upfront about sponsorships, but not everyone is is as good as you would like them to be. Totally agree. And I guess I should take this point to say I have no sponsorship. So any <laughs> endorsement I give, <laughs> nope, not getting any, not getting anything for it. Uh, just my authentic opinion. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we move on, myself and Water Cooler Talk are on a mission to help give back to different parts of the community and those who help build our show to where it stands today. For each new episode of the podcast, the guests will bring with them a charity of their choice to represent. On the day of their episode going live, Water Cooler Talk will give a donation to that charity in honor of the guest as well as a global platform to spread a message of love, hope, and togetherness. And we hope you listening to this episode can join in to help spread their message to your own personal audience. Beth, your charity of choice for today's episode is Middleway House. Do you mind explaining a bit about uh, the supportive and empowering work they do within the Southern Indiana communities? Absolutely. So the Middleway House, as you mentioned, is based in Southern Indiana, um, where I'm located as well. They provide a tremendous service to our community by offering housing, to domestic violence uh, victims uh, that are trying to leave tough situations. Um, They're a phenomenal organization. They help many women and children in Southern Indiana. And uh, I've been a supporter of them for many years. And I'm so glad to have this opportunity to talk with you and have us continue to support them. They're just a phenomenal organization. Very much appreciate you being able to bring them on the show and for me to be able to give them a platform to share some of the great work they're doing. Yeah, no, thank you. All right, Beth, are you ready to jump into our final news story? Jump into some dreams like we're Freddy Krueger. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do this. All right. This is from the Guardian News Media written by Adam Gabbett. July 5th, 2021. Nightmare scenario. Alarm as advertisers seek to plug into our dreams. The concept of dream incubation, quote, techniques employed during wakefulness to help a person dream about a specific topic, end quote, has been around for thousands of years, according to researchers. And over the past decade, research has shown that dreams can be more targeted and that humans can be highly susceptible to thoughts or ideas introduced while they sleep. A 2014 study published in the Journal of Neuroscience, Olfactory Averse Conditioning During Sleep Reduces Cigarette Smoking Behavior, found that smokers exposed to the smell of cigarettes and rotten eggs while they slept smoked 30% fewer cigarettes the following week. While much of the research so far has been aimed at positive results, scientists fear that the threat of dream advertising in an increasingly wired world is not likely to be limited to willing participation. Bob Stickold, a cognitive neuroscience and professor at Harvard Medical School who was one of 35 sleep and dream researchers that co-authored an open letter, Advertising in dreams is coming. Now what? (laughs) Which sounded the alarm over companies using targeted dream incubation stated, they're trying to push an addictive drug on people who are naive to what's being done to them. I don't know if it can get much worse than that. Anything you could imagine an advertising campaign for at all could arguably be enhanced by weaponizing sleep. He continues, something like 30 million people have these listening Alexa type devices in their bedroom. And... Those devices can play anything they want, whenever they want, and advertisers could buy advertising time that they want played at, say, 2.30 in the morning. It wouldn't be an entirely straightforward process, though. To sell a product involuntarily through dreams, 
the potential advertising campaign would have to be linked to adverts people see while they are awake. For example, it could be done by playing a certain sound every time a product is seen during a TV or YouTube advert, and then replaying that sound while someone is sleeping, potentially through a home device like an Alexa, would, in theory, trigger dreams about the corresponding product. It's a sobering thought, and in an effort to avoid such scenarios, the previously mentioned open letter called for stricter regulations on advertising to prevent products being thrust into our dreams. The Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, already restricts some subliminal advertising, such as flashing of words or images during films or TV shows, and would hopefully be able to intervene. Beth, our slumber may be safe for the moment, but scientists believe this is a real threat. Bob Stickle concludes, We believe that proactive action and new protective policies are urgently needed to keep advertisers from manipulating one of the last refuges of our already beleaguered conscious and unconscious minds. Our dreams. So... <laughs> Just reading this makes me, all right, world's getting crazy. But Beth, like much of your research taps into this idea of strain from traditional advertising because it's so much easier to avoid, you know, ad blockers, ad-free streaming. So have you visited this idea of dream incubation? And what are your thoughts on the concept? Because I know you have mentioned in previous talks the importance of, you know, multimedia distractions. I'm watching Netflix while I'm on my phone. And this idea of verbal placement, playing the sound that I can play later. I, I think this is a fascinating article. Um, this was my first sort of exposure to the idea of like dream dream incubation. Okay. Though, as you mentioned, I think it very much is tied to some of the newer marketing techniques that try to influence in non-traditional ways. So giving us exposure to a brand name or verbal brand mention and in a context that we might not be expecting it. So I do think it sort of is related. I also think it's related to this idea in marketing research that researchers have been exploring for a while, which is called like subliminal advertising or subliminal messaging, where it's like these very brief exposures, whether it's a sound or, you know, something to trigger a memory of some other ad campaign. Potentially the good news for consumers who read this article or listened to you summarize this article now that are like freaking out, that at least what we found in the marketing literature so far is that subliminal advertising isn't that effective. You and this sort of makes sense to influence us and our behaviors and our preferences. It requires a slightly sort of stronger uh, message than something that is typically subliminal. I, I think if you're a consumer and you read this and you were very worried, uh, my take would be that is definitely an invasion of privacy and, and regulator, regulators should consider how to prevent that from happening if it's not consensual. But at the same time, if it were to happen, I don't think it would have substantial influence on purchasing behavior, for example. Mm -hmm. Why, I mean, if you don't explain, or if you don't mind explaining more, is subliminal advertising not something that can necessarily be as effective as maybe an advertiser wants? Because I think about something like um, Apple, I believe. So if you have an Apple phone in a movie, the bad character cannot be using an Apple product. So I, I, I can understand how like Apple is trying to create this image of only good people use Apple and so buy our product if you're a good person. Yeah, no, that is true. I've also heard that as well. Um, and we can test it beautifully because Apple now has a platform where they create media content, such as shows like Ted Lasso. So they get to... Which is very positive. Which they have very <laughs> good control over product placements in a show, their new hit show. So that works in their favor. Uh, but I will, I'll sort of go back. So at least the research that I've seen on sort of subliminal, 
subliminal advertising is that it is such, I guess, a weak exposure that it doesn't encode in our memory in the same way that a stronger experience would. So if you think back of like how we're influenced, right, even in the context of like you saying you like Dune, right? So I have to recognize that you mentioned a movie name. I have to remember what movie name you mentioned. Mm. Um, and so things like me repeating the name back to you is a really good memory technique. I'm almost assuredly going to remember that we talked about it. But like <laughs> if you had just said it in passing or someone had said in the hallway and like I was busy and doing something else and I didn't repeat the name back to you, like even when you meet people for the first time and you like they go, your name, their name goes in one ear and out the other. One of the best memory techniques to get over that is just say the name back to them. There are way, These all relate to how information encodes in memory. And subliminal advertising has, one of the reasons it's not effective is it doesn't encode in our memory. We don't remember being exposed to it. And when that happens, it's not going to elicit a very strong effect. And so, I mean, there's been like meta-analyses and tons of research that has sort of shown that it really is hard to generate an effect in terms of like changing someone's ideas or getting them to buy something from this sort of subconscious advertising. I did think it was interesting in that article you sent that they had that study on cigarette smoking, um, where they essentially, just to sort of paraphrase my understanding of it, they introduced very foul smells while the person slept. So like rotten eggs or like the smell of cigarettes. And when they did that, that person was less likely to smoke the following week. I think their effect size, they said, was like 30% less likely to smoke. Mm-hmm. That's sort of interesting because it's it's playing a more sensory experience which has a slight, maybe a slightly higher chance of encoding in memory, right? Like for people who smell is a very strong memory cue, I could see how that would work. But something that's maybe just auditory, like someone doing like a opening a Coke can in the background or something, right? I don't know if that would encode in the same way. Uh, So I do think that's sort of interesting. Like I'm not saying that it can't influence people. And I'm sure you can find a study somewhere where they're like this subconscious (laughs) advertising ruined my life. But on average, it's not nearly as effective as all the other tools that marketers have in their toolkit. And given that it could be seen as a violation of privacy, I think marketers would be more likely to turn to those tools that are more effective and less likely to feel like a violation of privacy. That would just be my thought. Yeah, I definitely understand that that makes, you know, perfect sense. And also, like, if it is the subconscious subliminal messaging, like, it's more of a something you have to do long term. And a lot of these companies don't want to spend a bunch of money on something that doesn't work. Whereas and something that may be illegal that the FTC eventually cracks down on when they have these advertisements that already work. I do think it's interesting to think about, though, how this sort of massive rising technology has changed the way that marketers might be trying to reach us. Like, Mm -hmm. that's what I think is the beauty of this article is just sort of spur our thoughts and discussions on wow, like if this is one tool that has crossed marketers' minds to try to use to sell us something, what other tools are they considering or using? Well, I mean, you can even think about other countries that are trying to get into our political landscape may say, I'm willing to invest, you know, 50 to 100 years into trying to do this subconscious marketing to kind of change the narrative of the thought process of, you know, Americans and how they vote. And even, I mean, America to other, I don't want to say America is this perfect country. I know they interfere with other elections, but, you know, I could definitely see this as a political tool to create influence. And a lot of countries are like, well, we're going to be here for a while. So might as well start investing in this ability to 
maybe in the future influence people? I, it's potential. I, my my thought it, my thought is that it's still there are other avenues that are going to be more effective. That would be just more better. Yeah, yeah, or that better. would be more thought. I think it's it's unfortunate in this day and age. Just to use your political example. It's easy to spur up nationalism, so it's not hard to get. It's not hard to get people to sort of feel, you know, attached to their country and therefore competitive and or antagonistic to other countries. So even in that example, I think people would be willing to be influenced in that way, so that you wouldn't even have to sort of approach it in a subliminal or in a subconscious advertising way. Well, kind of what you're talking about with like these technological advances, like how will marketing grow as we? I mean, going back to Facebook in the meta universe and having this in-universe idea, like how will these technological advances change the marketing and advertisement game? Yeah, I, I love that question. I think about it all the time. It's one of the ones that spurs a lot of my research. And so as you've sort of noted previously in the show, I do a lot of work in product placement. And product placement is a type of advertising that's really expanding because of technological change. So Sort of thinking about the standard definition of product placement, it's simply the integration of a product into some form of media that we consume. Like you're watching Ted Lasso and you see Ted Lasso uses an Apple phone. That would be an example of product placement. But it's getting trickier or, or I guess more interesting um, from a researcher's standpoint as technology changes, right? So like I could be scrolling on Instagram and see someone wearing, you know, a specific brand of clothing. And that is a could be a product placement. And in fact, the technology is getting so good that you and I could both be scrolling Instagram at the same time and see someone's post. And if that influencer has given this permission, you could see a different brand on her clothing and I could see a different brand on her clothing. So that's mm, how good sort of this sort of machine learning technology has gotten. Again, that would be consented to by the influencer to be like, yep, these two brands can have, you know, be imposed on my clothing, but it's not necessarily consented to us as the people who are just scrolling our feeds and think we're, you know, think the poster might be authentically liking this brand, but in, in truth, it's getting paid by multiple brands. Um, so I think technology is really changing the game in terms of how marketers are serving us these ads. It's allowing for more targeting, which gets into the tricky slope of being more privacy invasive. When that's, I mean... <laughs> It's the tough thing as a content creator myself. You know, I understand that the importance of having to monetize a platform to, you know, I got to pay bills and I got to put food on the table and I got to put a roof over my head. Even shows like, you know, Ted Lasso, I mean, they have writers and they have actors and they have to pay these people. And if I can't directly advertise to you, I have to find different ways of paying the bills at the end of the day. And, you know, we kind of talked about this, you know, that phenomenon of persuasion knowledge, but I mean, what do creators do when trying to, you know, not go too far, but also having to pay the bills? Because, you know, I know, like, for example, a lot of podcasts that I listen to their show and I listen to their ad reads and I'm like, they don't give a flying fuck about that product that they're advertising. I can clearly tell. But then there are other shows that you can clearly tell that they care about this product and they actually want they actually see it as a positive space within you know, their audiences, you know, zeitgeist. So like, there's this fine line that creators are like, how do I not, you know, sell myself out? But how do I also pay the bills? Yeah, I'm totally sympathetic to that question. As you mentioned, you're a content creator. I'm a marketing professor. Like I train <laughs> the next generation of marketers. Like it's part of my job. So I totally want to give them tools and to understand the tools. 
that allow advertising to be effective, but at the same time, be completely mindful to sort of consumers and and being transparent and, and whatnot. So I definitely think there are there are lines that do seem to work. Mm-hmm. Let's say I like the Ted Lasso example. Let's say if you could choose to watch a 30 minute Apple ad or an episode of Ted Lasso, I think most people would choose to watch an episode of Ted Lasso, right? If you make the content fun and engaging, even if it's an ad, a lot of consumers are going to consent to that. One of my favorite examples, which does sort of sometimes break people's hearts is saying, is the Lego movie one of the greatest ads of all time? Because people are like, (laughs) the Lego movie is phenomenal. Why would you want me to think it's an ad? Like the, I'm thinking of the original Lego movie, very good. Uh, And some of the subsequent sequels also been pretty good. But at the end of the day, was that one of the most brilliant ad campaigns that Lego ever came out? Because they created a piece of content that was entertaining, that people wanted to consume, that happened to serve the same functions that an ad does. It made us have stronger ties to the brand. It made us more likely to want to play with the brand and purchase the brand. And so I think you can, as a content creator and advertiser, find ways that sort of you know, meet in the middle. Consumers want to be entertained most of the time. We want to be distracted some of the time. If we can find a sort of happy medium, I, I think consumers are like, cool, like we'll we'll meet you halfway. And a lot of that has to kind of go back to a lot of the themes we're talking about, trying to be transparent, trying to be authentic, not trying to just see us as a purchase opportunity, but see us as a individual that likes to be entertained. And I, I think there are ways that content creators can meet you know, that happy middle mm-hmm. ground. Yeah, it's up to the responsibility of the content creator to not abuse an audience. Yeah. Oh, totally. Uh, well, Beth, thank you for taking the time to share some of your perspective on some of the strangest and most interesting news stories the world has to offer in a productive and meaningful conversation. Listeners, if you would like to support and follow more of Beth's work as she explores the realms of advertising, social media, and political marketing, you can do so by following her on Twitter at Beth underscore Fawson. Once again, that's on Twitter at Beth underscore Fawson. And of course, as always, those links will be included in the description of this episode and on our website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. So kind of to wrap this up all in a pretty little bow, Beth, you know, for listeners and myself, how can we be more conscious when watching and listening to content to hold those creators, as we were just talking about, to a higher standard and be more responsible when trying to potentially sell us a product? Well, I think you're in a great space if you've made it this far on the podcast, because you're the type of person that is trying to learn more about how you're influenced by marketing and advertising messages. Having that knowledge, it, it creates a like a huge tool for you to figure out how you want to be influenced. And so I think that's my a lot of my advice I give to consumers who are overwhelmed in sort of this day and age and the amount of ad messages is get more informed. Try to understand how advertisers try to sell you things, because when you have that information, you're going to be better equipped to decide when you want to trigger persuasion knowledge or when you want to just be like, well, the Lego movie was phenomenal. I'm going to give them that one (laughs) (laughs) plus one Lego movie. Mm -hmm. And I think just the information, like in a lot of realms in our life, education can be it can even the playing field between sort of firms who have all this money and power and are trying to manipulate us. And consumers who can also, you know, empower themselves through information. At the same time, which I'm really glad you raised this lens, is we have to think about this from the content creator side. Some of our audience could potentially be content creators. Just remember to sort of keep the mindset that the people you're selling to are individuals. They're not numbers. They're not sales goals. They're not views. They're not likes. 
there are individuals behind these sort of numerics and sort of keeping that focus, I think, can add more humanity back into practice. And so like as a marketing professor, I know many of my colleagues at the Kelly School sort of agree with this philosophy that we want to sort of create the next generation of like ethical business leaders, people who do think about the human first and profit second. And I do think there's a generation like generational interest and surge and sort of this next you know, layer of business leaders that want to live that way. And I think we have the means to do so. Like we, we're in a, you know, a fortunate time. So I, those are sort of my lasting thoughts that sort of came from this conversation. And I really had a blast because I like thinking about these topics all the time. So it's a true pleasure to be able to chat about them. Yeah, I think definitely as a creator, even within this podcast, you know, I remember spending so much time trying to look at these analytics and I have to post this on a Tuesday at 634 because this is when my audience is online. And it's like, at the end of the day, if you really step back and humanize that audience, that is, like you said, actual human individuals that have, you know, these very complex lives, you get to be more responsible. But then also on the flip side, as a consumer, you know, holding these creators to higher standards and really understanding the decisions about what they're doing. You know, even I was just reading about how Disney is selling new merch for Steamboat Mini. It's Steamboat Willie. Steamboat Willie. Because the trademark is coming up and they want to continue to have a strong case for that trademark. Or even the live action Disney movies, is it really because they want to create good content or do they need to refresh the trademarks and the copyrights? But yeah, like you said, you know, I think we've talked about this a lot on the education aspect and just really understanding content, where it's coming from. You know, I always say support smaller creators, you know. And this understanding the general consensus of what's being created and why it's being created and who it's being created by can totally put you in a space above most people that are just maybe not willing to put in that extra effort. I don't want to say that because, you know, everyone has their own difficulties and time management and all these things. But I think it is important to educate yourself on what you're consuming and not just blindly consume things unless you've already put in the work on trusting that creator. Yeah. And I totally want to plus one, the uh, small businesses, small content creators mindset. I, 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 all for that as well. I And in that realm, I think one really interesting study I read recently is how advertising and marketing levels the competition playing field, right? Because if there was no advertising or marketing, all that would just benefit the big companies. Yes. It would benefit the companies we already know. A very good it point. wouldn't help these small companies that are trying to start up their small businesses, the small content creators that want to get their platforms heard. We need advertising to sort of lift our voice to get on people's like playing field or get on the playing field at all. And so I think advertising does serve a purpose that can be positive and there's actually a, there's a new article in a most recent kind of marketing science that supports this. People that use ad blockers that sort of block their online ads are way more likely to buy from the category leader um, than, you know, these smaller, more niche brands sort of indicating this sort of, you know, effect where advertising can increase competition. There's a really fascinating article by some research, uh, researcher at Emory University. So I highly recommend looking. Yeah, I'd love for it. you to yeah. send that to me because yeah. like even like. I don't use Amazon, but I do use Amazon to look for a product and then I'll follow it back to the original creator. But Amazon's easy. I understand why people want to use Amazon. Yeah. And I, I think your your point in your comments in the last sort of section made a lot of sense that we do need to be mindful that not everyone has the same advantages that we do, right? Like we, you know, people can avoid, certain people can avoid shopping from Amazon and others can't. And that that's fine. It's, I don't, I w don't ever want to walk away and have a consumer feel guilty about 
you know, how they go about their purchasing decisions. Everyone has their own constraints in life and you have to make the decision that's best for you. And, and Amazon is incredibly efficient in a lot of realms. So more power to it. So I think online, we hear the voice all the time that we should feel guilty about certain decisions mm-hmm. that we need to make. But at the end of the day, we're just one individual making decisions. If we want to pass the guilt on, it should be the companies where their decisions influence much more uh, factors than a one individual could ever influence. And so um, that's why, you know, we hear arguments about the carbon footprint. And there's a, you know, like, sure, if you want to live a more environmentally friendly life, I like, let's do it. Like individuals, we can make an impact, but companies have the opportunity to make huge impacts because, you know, their carbon footprint is so much more than you and I could ever create in our lifetimes. Uh, so I, I do be mindful of that. Like, as you mentioned, like we have to be mindful that some people, they don't have the flexibility to shop around or to look at sort of small businesses. But for those of us that are do that do and that are interested in that, I think that's a great sort of starting point to sort of level the playing field. Well, I very much appreciate you being able to have this conversation today, Beth. Uh, Thank you to my listeners for listening to another episode of Water Cooler Talk, the only such podcast on the internet hosted by myself and guest hosted today by Beth, where we take the strangest and most interesting real life news stories from around the world and just try and have a good old conversation about some of those ideas discussed in those bizarre news stories. I feel like you've perfectly wrapped up the show a few times already, but I'm going to give the floor to you for a third time, third time's the charm. Beth, Water Cooler Talk, the platform platform is yours to say whatever needs to be said to close out the show. I don't know if I have anything extra to add. I just want to say <laughs> that I, again, I'm very thankful for small, you know, smaller content creators, these sort of platforms that allow us to have these kind of conversations and, and inform others and keep others educated. Education is a huge passion of mine, as is probably evident by the career path that I've chosen. Very big shout out to our, to all the listeners who who've stuck through and, and hopefully you learned something and feel free to connect. As Adam mentioned, my Twitter handle, feel free to reach out. I love nerding about these type of issues and I'd love to keep the conversation going. All right. Well, Beth, thank you very much for the conversation. I look forward to many more conversations in the future. Uh, listeners, until next time. Peace. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real.